1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Feng Ping about the new book, The Efficacious Landscape, on the authorities of painting at the Northern Song Court. This came out with Harvard University Asia Center in 2015. Now, this is a book that's really exciting um, in the way that it's bringing together poetry and writing about painting and paintings of various forms in various kinds of places made for various kinds of uses by various kinds of people to tell a story about imaging and painting, landscape painting, ink painting in particular, as a form of currency, as a form of exchange, as a form of political commentary, and as a form of decoration, and much, much more at the Northern Song Court. So the two parts of the book take us through, um, respectively, the ways that and the reasons that the court decided to uh, support um, and give Uh, a kind of social status to, and cultural status to this genre in particular, and then the consequences of that for the use, um, the production, and the mobilization of these ink paintings um, in the lives of scholars and painters, Um, in terms of their relationship. So it's a fascinating story. Um, And in the course of the conversation, you're going to hear Ping talk about the ways that she thinks that that the story makes particularly important historiographical contributions. So I'm really excited about this interview um, in part because of that, is you really are going to have a sense of not just what's happening in the book, but the moments of the book that reach out and speak to the larger field in particularly resonant ways. It's a beautiful book. Um, It's a book that's beautiful, not just because of the images and the ways the images form an, an integral part of the argument, but also because of the ways that it narrates this very intimate relationship among paintings and images and poems and the men who produce them and the women as well um, keep an ear out for the importance of women and empresses in particular to this story. It's a really fascinating part of what's going on here. Okay. Well, I'll leave you um, to the interview. I'll leave it at that, but thank you so much for listening. Thanks for supporting the channel. And I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Feng Ping about the new book, The Efficacious Landscape. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ping, and thanks very, very much for being with me today. It's a beautiful book. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, thanks I'm so, so excited psyched to, to talk with you about it. So let's start as is kind of traditional for the channel um, by talking mm-hmm. a little bit about how you came to the field. Why art history? Why Chinese art history? And why Northern Song art history in particular? Mhm uh actually,
0: I was just talking uh with uh, uh, uh somebody who writes uh about art in, uh, for Seattle magazine uh that in fact I came to art history as a matter of somewhat of an accident uh since you know i uh, grew up in a, a traditional Chinese family, so their expectations of me were rather different. Um, and we, uh, growing up, uh, in, I, I grew up in Malaysia and Singapore. Uh, art history isn't something that, um is a normal path uh, that uh, is it, really not very well known at all. So actually, I was uh, you know working on computer science and engineering and all those mm-hmm. traditional subjects, um, and I happened to walk into the wrong room and sat <laughs> down in an art history class, which. Uh, Truly, as I was saying to this uh, reporter, it was a love story. Uh, uh, When I saw what was going on in that class, that was it for me. Um, So immediately, um, I decided that uh, that's, that's what I wanted to do. So that's how I came to art history, uh, and it was it happened to be a Chinese art, uh, Chinese art history uh, uh, class, a course, um, and the professor who was teaching it, uh, Professor Maggie Bigford, uh remains to this day a, a, a close mentor of mine, um, and we happened to end up in the same time period that she also worked <laughs> on the Song. <laughs> wow. So now we have a lot to talk about. <laughs>
1: So the book itself takes us into the ink landscape painting of the Northern Mm -hmm. Song in particular. So what brought you to Mm -hmm. focus on that particular form? Well, um, it's
0: actually... Uh, Another uh, sort of sort of sideways path, you might say. um, Is uh, we in graduate school, we take a number of courses. I uh, am a student of Professor Wen Bong of Princeton, um, and uh, he teaches a number of different classes. Uh, uh, He when he was teaching at Princeton, now he's right now retired, um, and one of the classes. That he taught was in the uh, trad- uh, on the tradition of of uh, ink uh, of painting mm-hmm. uh, and of early painting. So, uh, in early painting, there are you know a number of big names, and uh, oftentimes he, he would want his students to approach the biggest possible topic, and rather uh, with the idea of uh, great ambition. So, uh, for that class that I was taking with him, he said to me, do or Shi. That was all he said. That was all of the instructions that he gave me <laughs> to do Guo Shi. So, I went and did Guo Shi. <laughs> <So> I <laughs> went about this by finding everything I could look at and to read, all the poetry, all of the. Uh, uh, the original uh, uh, contemporaneous poetry and also all of the uh, secondary writings on Guoshi, and of which there was a lot. Uh, And I tried to cover every single base that I could. So to master the topic, in other words, was this idea. Um, And it happened that I was very lucky um, and I found something new, or or rather I made a new observation, which actually is really the... uh, uh, it is still the most, perhaps the most important contribution that I've made to the field so far. At least, it's something that uh, people know me for, yeah. and which is uh, really the basis for undertaking this book. So, so that's that's how that's how that happened. I can talk more about that. Yeah. So let's. That, that was
1: um, is what was this new observation? Do you want to give us a sneak peek, and then we'll sort of have that in our mind for when we get to the mm. chapter?
0: Sure. Um, I uh, was reading, um, as I was telling you, a, a group of poetry. Um, so there are many sort of c- uh, collected works uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, in this case, uh, uh, every single poem that's ever been written about four Xi. So this is, as you might imagine, is quite a lot. Uh, but I was reading a set which was written by Su Shi, uh and his colleagues uh Wang Jian and some others and uh as you probably know um, uh, poetry in shu uh sometimes is uh, about uh, uh you know answering uh, poetry. so they come in series they come in groups mm-hmm. um so i was reading these uh, they they are known um uh so it it's not that no one has ever read them but i did make uh, this observation that these poems were talking about a painting that was very familiar to me. I had actually uh, seen this painting in reproductions because I had my I had been gathering all of the gorshi that I could find of which, you know, they are a group of um closer attributions, real, uh, authentic works, closer attributions, and then many, many, many more in the style of Li Cheng and uh Shi, that is uh, Li Cheng being Gou uh master. Uh, so uh, I made this connection between this, Painting that I had in my head that I'd seen before in this group of poetry. And then it so happened that for that seminar that I was speaking with Professor Song, we took a field trip to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is the uh, repository for this painting that I had seen in reproduction. And when I saw the painting, I nearly keeled over because I knew, I knew that this painting was the painting that was being discussed in the poetry uh, so that was my initial excitement and cost me many days of sleep because I was so excited Yeah, um, <laughs> so great I, love <laughs> yeah, that. I love it, like that <laughs> it was amazing it was completely a revelatory so I of course it took many years after that to actually figure out exactly what it was I should be excited about <laughs> but there was a moment where there was this great energy Um uh, uh when I went to this uh to the Met to see this painting, I additionally made an, uh some observations about this painting which no one else has uh, made before, which is that the painting is not just a sort of a generic scene but there was a very specific uh rhetorical message that has been conveyed <laughs> that this painting was uh everything in this painting had a system. That everything came in pairs, and nobody really had observed that before, so I went about to try and figure out what was going on in the painting and what was going on uh, in these uh, poem sets, uh around sushi circle uh, and what were the similarities and what were the differences because I had to prove to myself that my initial reaction was in fact I had some basis to it, so. I was trying to figure out, you know, if um you read a painting, uh, or r- rather you receive a painting, you're looking at a painting, uh, from a point of view as a poet, you obviously don't have to describe it describe it exactly. I mean that is not your job as a poet. So there ought to be differences in some ways. But then um whether we're able to also tease out some connections between the two and how can we go about Uh, doing that. In fact, I had a lot of help. Um, I mean, I wrote it up uh, as a talk, and then later on, um, there were some scholars and residents at the uh, Institute of Advanced Studies uh, who were there for the year, and everybody, you know, took a stab at my uh, early paper uh, on on this topic. Uh, and really, uh, you know, they were very experienced scholars, like uh, Charles Hartman. Professor Shaibri all gave me very good uh, advice as to how to approach, you know, this methodologically speaking. Uh, and that was published, actually, as a as a standalone article. Uh, but it reappears in this book mm-hmm. as really an anchor point in Part 2, uh, and this is uh, Chapter 4
1: so let me situate this for listeners okay so listeners you've been hearing this term guashi you've been hearing about this painting and this is old trees level distance right that, uh, that's right at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, in Chapter Four. So let's take a step back and figure out how to get there. Right? Who is Bookie? Yeah. Why is this important? Um, so one mm-hmm. of the really fascinating things about the book, and, and we'll talk about this um, in particular moments as we work through the chapters, precisely speaks mm-hmm. to something that you've already been mentioning as you know something that brought you into the project in particular, and that is the ways that paintings and poems and texts of various sorts and essays and are all read together as part of the archive of the book. And so there are a lot of different kinds of sources and ways of reading and ways of putting these different sorts of texts, visual texts, um, verse verse texts, prose texts into conversation. Um, and so one of the really exciting things about the book, I think, and, and you know, we'll talk about this at particular mm-hmm. moments, is the way... Um, that you are creating this conversation for us among these different kinds of objects and kinds of formats Mm -hmm. and and sources. So that comes Mm -hmm. up, right, like just right from the very beginning. Yes. So... Mm -hmm. For listeners who don't know anything about the Song Dynasty, I'm just going to take a moment to set the stage here, right? Um, Just Mm -hmm. a a couple moments. So ink landscape painting was distinctive to the Song Dynasty, and you tell us this in the introduction. The Northern Song period was a really special time for ink landscape paintings. Now, by the 10th century, this kind of painting had emerged as what you call here a scholar's category whose values were especially worthy of support in critical scholarly discourse. Now the Mm -hmm. book is gonna look very carefully at the imperial establishment's efforts to, again, as you put it here, cultivate the genre of ink landscape painting and its iconography as a dynastic project. Okay, so that's Mm -hmm. one of the big um, arguments of the book. Now, uh, Guo Xi is a really key figure here um, for many reasons. Him, he's often most well known as Shenzong's favorite painter. Um, he lived yeah. in the 11th century. And his most famous surviving work is something called Early Spring. We meet that in the introduction. We're going to come back to it later. Now, the book, given this context, one of the things that the book is going to do um, is kind of show us, but also complicate um, a way of interpreting these ink landscape paintings as representations of imperial power. But also we're going to see that these landscape paintings by the end of the story can also be very kind of intimate um, objects and records of a, of a kind of, um, uh, you say, you call them a kind of social currency, and they're records mm-hmm. of very intimate relationships and exchanges as much as they speak to and speak for these larger um, imperial political phenomena. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, thank you for that summary. Okay, so now we can get you know now we can really get into it. So there's two parts of the book. Um, yeah. The chapters in the first part of the book collectively argue that the imperial establishment, again, as you put it, embraced the ink landscape as a distinctive cultural medium in the song. And we're going to see a few chapters here that that look at uh, how that's happening. All right. Chapter mm-hmm. one. Um, chapter one brings us into the space of the song Imperial City and its political connotations. Now, this is a super fascinating chapter, at least for me, but all of them are fascinating for me. Um, so in this chapter, you describe the importance not just of buildings themselves and the kind of spatial arrangement of building, but of their decoration. The decoration of buildings was really sensitive to political conditions and political interests, and ink landscape paintings became deeply associated with civil power in this period. okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. one of the you take us into a space um that was really important for this, and this is the Hanlin Institute. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to hit the ball back to you at this point. Mm -hmm. What? Why is the Mm -hmm. Hanlin Institute so important um, in terms of the decoration of building, and so important for this particular moment of the study?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the for those who are. Uh, who may, may or may not be familiar with the Hanlin Institute. I think perhaps people are more familiar with Hanlin Institute than it is with, than with the decoration in it. Yeah. But of course, uh, these are the most erudite, uh, and traditionally from the Tang Dynasty onwards when it was first founded, the most erudite of uh, scholars, uh, who, who, who work in there, who are associated with, with the, uh, the academicians. Um of course, in, uh, as far as the textual record is concerned, um it is strongly biased towards those who write, and those who write are the academicians themselves. So they really uh, they tell the only story that we have left to us uh, of this kind of um, uh, i would say consumption of uh, of uh, imagery uh, or, uh, in within uh, imperial spaces. So they are on one hand very close. Uh, To uh, the uh, uh, the imperial establishments, the emperor, uh, because they're physically close, but they are in the Song dynasty at least. They're also officers uh rather officer bureaucrats, um uh, uh illiterati who are officer bureaucrats. So uh they, they, they have this kind uh this 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 role of being on one hand uh members of government, but on the other hand intimate uh, courtiers of the uh the emperor. So there is this uh, uh a traditional versus uh quote unquote modern song position of uh, these academicians. so this is one of the reasons why it's fascinating not just because they, the records exist for this uh, group of people but uh, and the space in the imperial city but also because um, the academicians themselves were uh, they they uh, were interstices they they worked uh, within the the intimate space of the emperor and yet they were members of the outer, outer court of government.
1: So that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 10th century, landscape was introduced into the main hall of the Hanlin Institute. Why is that such a big deal?
0: Yeah, uh, very good question. So uh, tradition, of course, is very important uh, when it comes to sort of what is uh, uh, inner city culture. So certain practices that are uh Based in the town, when you perpetuate those practices, uh, this is uh, something about uh, calling on the classicistic authority. So, uh, in that sense, to refer to the past is a very important practice. So, if the Hanlin Institute is decorated in a certain way to revive those kinds of topics and subjects and iconography, it is not just reviving it for reviving sake, but it is reviving a certain path path, or classicistic path. So, Hanlin Institute was always uh, had a long history uh, of being decorated in a certain way since the Tang Dynasty. So, to change the subject, uh, is a very strong act, and it has to have a uh, it has to have powerful support from all sides um so that's uh something which I identify as an important moment uh in in its history and in fact, the uh, people who write about it also identify it as a, a a change and an important moment so this is one of the reasons why I think it's possible to um, be relatively sensitive to what are the taboos. So dragon paintings are uh, not necessarily a taboo, but it is a tricky subject matter to have because it's an imperial subject matter. And if you want to put it in the Holland Institute, it's tricky. So uh, there, there, there is a story where uh, uh, the picture of dragons had to be obliterated because the emperor was coming, and uh, that was kind of pushing, uh, pushing, uh, pushing at the boundary of what was acceptable. So this, uh, for this reason, I think that it's possible to um, interpret with sensitivity uh, the things that were allowed and the things that were not allowed, and when changes uh, happen or when uh, references to the past are made.
1: So the presence of paintings on display, as you tell us in this chapter, what publicly indicated the prestige of an institution. So this was actually a really important... Important statement that there were paintings mm-hmm. at all, and you take mm-hmm. us into the process in which landscape paintings, in particular, get set up in the Jade Hall, right? And you introduce us to Dong Yu's ocean wave paintings and mm-hmm. Juran's paintings and a painting by Yan Su, and, and we meet a lot of individual works here that are just really fascinating for this story. But by the mm-hmm. end of it, right, we come by the end of this chapter, we come back to Guo Xi. Now, mm-hmm. you bring us into um, the uh, the display of large scale landscape screens in the offices of the city central government. And these were commissioned um, by and from Guo Xi. now these screens mm-hmm. are important, not just in terms of how we understand you know, paintings, but they're important to how we understand the history of politics and government here in a really interesting way. The screens, mm-hmm. as you argue here, are meant to represent um, in your words the new direction of Shenzong's restructured government. They were monuments mm-hmm. of Shenzong's political reform. How were these landscape landscape screens monuments of political reform? Mm. Uh,
0: the, the reason why this uh, uh, chapter, I think is is important is because it shows it allows us uh through the this one place, the Hundred Institutes, uh, at the early beginnings of how landscape culture took hold, uh, to the time when it reaches its first uh, its real fruition in some ways. So in fact it tells us about why, why she was so important. Uh so it allows us the full span of uh theory basically almost the entire northern Song. uh so i uh the 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 importance i think of uh Kuo Xi is is because he is able to really uh, or rather he's called on and he is able to execute uh these works at the same time and to celebrate uh uh, Shunzhong's, uh 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 change uh changes. Uh this uh uh an, a, an activist monarchy that had never been seen before. So this was uh very, very uh unusual for uh a sovereign to take up this much uh this uh this much uh uh change, uh change uh under himself. Um and both types of, of both periods of Xinjiang's uh, uh, reforms, including uh, the uh, his chief minister's uh, Wang Anshi's new policies, and also after that, the time after he broke Xinjiang uh, and uh, broke away from Wang Anshi's uh, ideas and uh, embarked on his own. So uh, at both times, Gorshi's landscapes uh, were able to, uh, I would say, uh, effectuate. Uh, that change was happening in government. Uh, so he uh, is called on to mm, not just decorate, that is not just to adorn uh, new halls, but to adorn it uh, w- by reflecting hierarchy, that is to say, um, to relate it uh, uh, to the ranks of whoever uh, uh, was sitting in those offices. So this is the uh, so through the Hanlin Institute we can see that uh, while paintings in general landscape paintings in particular were always uh, sort of sumptuary gifts that is you know not everybody got to have paintings that so you had to be special in order to uh, have permission to have painting in uh within the imperial space. But by the time Gwauchi uh comes around, uh he his paintings are uh, are allocated by ways of a government hierarchy, that is, uh, if you had a certain rank, you uh, could have a certain type of painting by Gorshi, versus if you had a lower rank, then you can have something else. So this kind of, uh, um, uh, hierarchical deployment, I think, uh, is something, uh, which is related to uh, the sort of a, uh, the, almost a direct idea of this governmental uh, restructuring uh, this, this new state ideology uh, that St. is was trying to uh, present so um, uh, it is in fact uh, 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 you know it's possible to uh, I mean I began this project as trying to identify in what areas paintings existed uh, architecturally speaking uh, being architectonic uh, elements uh but in the end uh, the, it was possible to tell the story of uh this great uh, difference in the way that uh our landscaping was consumed uh in Han, uh in the Hanna Institute.
1: So not only is the placement and access to these paintings politically important and interesting, but also the content of these paintings is, is a kind of political um, statement as well. And the next chapter takes us into a really fascinating way of reading um, paintings and scrolls as political mm-hmm. documents, right? And it's just super fascinating. So chapter two and three, the next chapters in part one, help us understand, as you put it here, the authority of painting and painters at court. And the second chapter looks very carefully at the context of state sacrifice. This is a chapter on ritual and politics and its manifestations in some really interesting and important paintings. Now, this chapter considers how works by two artists are Guo Shi, that we've been talking about, and also um, Li Gonglin engaged with and made painterly contributions to. So this is an important claim, right? They're making contributions through painting to political debates over state ritual. So political deba- debate, in other words, is also taking place in the form of paintings. Um, so this is actually a really mm-hmm. important way of helping us understand a way to read sources, right? To read mm-hmm. things as part of a political debate. Now mm-hmm. you talk mm-hmm. about um, some of the most important ways here that Shenzong's political reforms were manifesting in changes to and debates over state rituals. And these had to do broadly with two major issues. Um, debates about honoring deified ancestors and debates over um, ending uh, the joint sacrifice to heaven and earth. So what I'm going to mm-hmm. do is not talk too much about that in detail, but instead go right to the paintings as a way to talk mm-hmm. about um, what these sure. were. So let's go right to them. Um, you talk about, again, paintings by these two artists. Let's first look at Guo Xi, um, And you you start us off here with early spring, even though we, well, we'd look at um, some other ones as well. Um, can you bring us into early spring or what work as a political commentary on ritual. How do we Mm -hmm. read this and what's in there that helps us Mm -hmm. understand his political stance and his depiction of ritual as it's related to it?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, Carla, first I I want to uh, emphasize uh, that, you know, I am an art historian uh, and one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was really to highlight to anchor each and every chapter in my book around a group of objects. Uh, And so this chapter uh, really is centered around, it is, uh, I I am the most proud of all the chapters. I mean, I'm proud of all this whole book, but of all the chapters, I feel that this is the one which uh, really has uh, something special to it. Um, And one of the things which I am most proud of is uh, that this is a very unusual or comparison. That is, nobody compares a landscape painter and a figure painter. Mm-hmm. Nobody does this. Uh, so I wanted to find a way to discuss uh, the, these two painters. Very important. Everyone knows who Kuo is. Everyone knows who Li Gonglin is. But to discuss them together and to find, uh, in some ways, the areas in which they are in fact a little bit more similar than we ever imagined or uh because they are uh two people of very very different status one being just a court painter the other he's an important court painter he's just a court painter uh whereas Beowulf has a very different status as a highly educated and very well respected uh scholar and a literati uh so uh even given that so this chapter attempts Uh, to uh, uh, juxtapose them together and to uh, look for resonances so uh, that's just to practice Um, so uh, the other I think um, uh, 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 aspect of this that I think uh, uh, many readers will go directly to uh, I presented some of this material uh, was very well received it was rather controversial uh, and not certainly not everyone uh, Uh, accepted my findings, but uh, I embarked on this chapter because um, I wanted to see where it would take me, uh, 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 given that Korsi's early spring is important not just as a great uh, artistic work, but that it is both signed and dated, and it's one of the earliest signed paintings by an uh, artist himself. And we know exactly about the date. So uh, uh, it's a 1072. Uh, Given that it is 1072, it becomes possible to then look in the texture records exactly around that time to see what else is going on. And it is very commonly proposed, uh, stated that um, Early Spring is a painting uh, that has great uh, spirituality uh, because it depicts the change, uh, this particular moment in changing of the seasons so of new growth and transformation. So it can be a number have a number of different meanings, including um uh, basically a very uh, very uh, vernacular one such as happy new year right this mm-hmm. is the, the transition uh or sort of the, a picture of uh, of, uh, of 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 a taoist nature taoist meaning of transformation uh but there is also this uh, other aspect which i prefer to uh to focus on which is that it has a state and it can be related in some ways to uh it, it's possible to relate it uh, more directly to uh to a ritual events of its time so, uh, given that I I know a little bit about Guo Xi and his uh, background, I know all I have uh, my dissertation uh, backing me up on on all of the works that uh, can be associated to a time period. I discovered that uh, early spring was in fact a very interesting moment. It was five years. Uh, he was a long-established painter. But he entered court uh, relatively late in his years. And this was early spring was only five years into his court career. So even though he was a well-established painter, uh, this painting was clearly something that was designed to be uh, a showcase uh, of himself. Uh, It was not a collaboration. It was a showcase of his skills. Um, uh, So why? So why... Why this work? Well, it's possible, uh, as I said, from my list of, uh, of uh, more or less same time period of same uh, or, or works that uh, had similar uh, purposes. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Early Spring is not a one-off. There's a couple of others which we can also associate to its ability to respond to things that were going on at that time. So that's another reason to uh, find more uh, political content co- uh, content uh, in early spring. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, one uh, really interesting piece of evidence uh, came to my attention. It was actually um, an article which I had photocopied many, many years ago as a grad student. In fact, it was so long ago that the paper had literally turned yellow. (laughs) And I had only now just gotten around... To reading this article, uh, it was an article by a, a historian of uh, of uh, of religion, uh, and so he he worked his area of, of study is uh, this this time period, um, and as I, I I read it, I realized that he was um, talking about. Uh, some of the things which I was familiar and uh, was trying to understand, and so uh, that his his article had great resonance, actually, with the two paintings that I was reading about. So, my feeling was that early spring can um, be related to uh, the uh, the. Changes at the Round Mound, which is the most important sacrificial site uh, of uh, of the Song aristocracy, which is uh, the a place of a triennial sacrifices at the southern suburb of the of uh, the, the, of, of, of Kaifeng, the imperial city, at <laughs> um, once every three years so it so happened that i was trying at first to relate early spring to one of these sacrifices and uh, wasn't happy until i started reading uh some of the some of uh, the most specific changes so uh, in fact uh, the the date of 1072 doesn't match identically uh with the very uh, first sacrifice uh to this new, uh, newly, newly, uh, promoted, uh, ancestor, the progenitor ancestor, Shizhu. Uh, but it, it, uh, does commemorate, I think, the moment that Shizhu was promoted by Wang Anxi, which is in 1072. So the first sacrifice was actually occurred in 1073, but the time that this, uh, uh, ancestor was promoted was ten seventy two same time at Scoresby's early spring. So that is the that is uh, in in my estimation probably as close as we're going to get. Um, but it does uh, represent a new claim for uh, this uh, for this painting, uh, one of our hallmark works of the Northern Song, and also of uh, of uh, uh, of landscape painting, so it, it, uh, there I, I cannot uh, stress more how important this painting is.
1: So, for, I mean, we could easily speak for another hour, right? Just about the rest of this chapter. Yeah. Um, so, I, wa- so sure. I want to move on, but I want to just also mention for listeners one of the really interesting things that's happening here is that um, the really wonderful account of the importance of this painting in this context that you've just um, described for us and that's written and depicted and, uh, very beautifully in the chapter as well is juxtaposed with what's happening in the work of Li Gonglin, right? Mm -hmm. It has to do with, you know, how do you read... Um, the way the uh, this work is depicting things like spirit tablets and sort of how do we look at this kind of imagery um, in this larger context and be able to tease out as you did here the very not only the presence of a political statement about or reading of this sort of ritual transformation and reform but also a particular political position um, on the ritual reform. So it's not just let's read this um, these scrolls and paintings as um, political documents that are relevant for understanding the larger context. It's let's read these against each other to be able to tease out particular political positions as they Mm -hmm. are manifest uh, visually. And so it's a really, really interesting way of reading and of helping us to read um, these particular images. And, And it's a really wonderful chapter. So I'll just thank of, you. leave it. No. Oh, I mean, thank you. Um, so I'll leave it there. But I just want to mark that for listeners is a whole lot more we can talk about in that chapter. And I hope listeners will go in and, and read it and use it um, and model it. Actually, um, it really yeah. helps us, you know, it gives us a new way to read and to see. And that's um, in my opinion, what a lot of the best work right now does, right? So, the oh, thank third, you. Yeah. Um So, the third chapter um, takes us into kind of further into this context and it looks at the importance of the notion of lineage in ink landscape painting. Now, you talk here about um, the reason why lineage is so important here, but let's look at that in the context of the particular case that you give us. Now, chapter mm-hmm. three looks at a style of painting. Known as the Li Chung style. The chapter mm-hmm. argues that the court is actually making an effort to, um, as you put it, consolidate its command over an important Song artistic legacy by preserving, by transmitting, and by documenting Li Chung style landscapes and by imagining Li Chung as the founding scholar painter of the imperial landscape style of the age. This is the creation of and the consolidation of this lineage and this particular figure um, as this lineage. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you to talk about this. How and why did this style become important to uh, sort of imperial tastes? And for you, what's most important for us to understand about the contribution that this chapter is making? hmm
0: um- As I uh, sort of uh, mentioned earlier, I think that this chapter perhaps has very broad significance for the study of Chinese painting because it deals with the issue of style. And I'm certainly not the first person to deal with questions of style, uh, but I wanted to uh, highlight how it is actually, I think it's possible to talk about style in a very different way in, in the sense uh, of uh, that it has, it is not just a way for us. To uh, identify lineages in painting for the purposes of authentication, uh, which is one of the major ways that we use issues uh, questions of style. That is, we assume that there are lineages uh, in terms of how uh, painters learn uh, how to paint and how uh, and uh, their own uh, identity is related to which masses they follow. But the, this chapter actually approaches it from the from the point of view of how is style important for uh, groups of people so in this case uh, uh, the institutional significance of style Uh, so what is the meaning of uh, when a particular group supports a certain one style over another style so in this uh, case I wanted to try and uh, Re, uh, recalibrate uh, our uh, ways of approaching um, uh, this uh, question of lineage. So, uh, in this case, uh, this uh, the, the, the uh, most often stated in the first line of any description of Guo Shi is that he was with, uh, his master was Li Cheng. So, this question of uh, Li Guo. Or the the uh, the joining of their last names is uh, becomes in its own right a painting style in later times. I think from the Yuan dynasty all the way up to the present, actually. Um, so, uh, so why Li Guo? So I wanted to um, to understand this because I also noticed that in the textual record, Guo Xi was certainly not the only follower of Li Guo. So it occurred to me that there was a particular reason that Li Guo became important and not anybody else who was a follower of Li Cheng. Uh, and so this, t- this took me to Li Cheng, uh, who is perhaps the, uh, one of the uh, big names uh, of landscape painting of which we know so little about because we have, unlike Xi, we have uh, no work which all of us agree on. uh, To be by his hand So to a certain extent uh, Our picture of uh, Li Cheng Is rather uh, a little bit More distant to us than Is Guo Xi So as a and, 10th century master,
1: and in fact, in the, just to jump in, one of the really mm-hmm. wonderful moments in the chapter is that you're quoting Mi Fu saying, "I want to argue for the non-existence of Li Chang." Right. right. So, so it's just a really fascinating uh, mm-hmm. problem. Anyway, mm-hmm. Go on. I'm sorry. So yes, even in Guo Xi's time, uh,
0: when uh, Mi Fu was uh, was active, uh, uh, those they were contemporaries. Uh, that Li Chang already has disappeared from uh, the view uh, so they were uh, there was already no longer a very clear idea who Lichung was so the basically Chun could be anything that uh, if, if his supporters wanted him to be so there's uh, there a questions of authenticity and uh was already in play at this time uh, so I uh, in reading all of the source, uh, there have been many scholars who worked on Li Cheng and all of the texts uh, that talk about Li Chung. and I tried to sort of tease out um, uh, what roles Li Cheng played and by doing so it actually um uh, highlighted to me some very important ideas and sources which I had previously not paid attention to, which is that uh, who 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 was Li greatest supporters at court? Who was Li greatest supporters at court? Were actually the empresses. <laughs> the not the emperor himself, but uh, these uh, various very important empresses who uh, also served as a regent. One of them. So uh, that, to my opinion, was not was no coincidence. Uh, in fact, it is through me who's. Uh, Retelling that one of the stories, uh, survives as to how, um, Li Tong's uh, uh great-granddaughter was called to court to authenticate works that were in the collection. And those works were presented by the enter's dowager to her grandson, Shinzhou. Um, uh, so to highlight that this process, uh, of, uh, finding real Li Tong was, uh, was actually, uh, proposed, uh, pushed forward by the empresses, by the female monarchy. Uh, and that, uh, in fact, it, it's quite possible that it is through their power and their support in their hand that uh, landscape painting uh, came to the fore in the imperial city. And that is something which uh, uh, is a very inter- uh, that we have not paid attention to before, an entirely new observation.
1: So that's really awesome. And so just, um, and there are actually several moments in the book where you're pointing us to the importance of support and patronage by empresses specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so um, that's just, I just want to highlight that and like make a, a verbal highlighter Marked in big yellow uh, (laughs) over that. It's a really interesting part of the story. So the Mm -hmm. chapter, um, in uh, a way uh, to close out part one, the chapter argues that the court's doing a few different kinds of things, right, at least in order to cultivate and create um, this particular lineage and this particular style, right? They create a mm-hmm. collection that's um, kind of uh, focused around this idea of authenticity as you've described it. They invested in Guo Xi um, as a painter who they decided was the best representation of the Li style. And they wrote a history of Li Chung that explained, in, like, as you put it here, that explained his achievements as appropriate for the court. So there's all kinds of fascinating things happening in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and- yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It is a, yeah, yeah, sorry. I I wanted, I simply wanted to add that it is a way to reuse all our great sources, uh, which Surviving paintings, which are in, we can tell with our own eyes, are Cheng paintings, but we cannot say are uh, which is actually a negative way of looking at it, uh, and instead, instead turn it on its end, and to use those to say, well, the court perhaps commissioned these uh, as copies of Cheng style. Why would a court want to do that, except to promote uh, a particular uh, way of painting as its most prom- as the most prominent uh, of uh, court products? so in fact it uh, uh it uh it uh, uh creates uh a very new window into these uh, paintings as uh, very important sources rather than as not so great attributions.
1: That's right. Okay. So there's so much going on in part one that we haven't had a chance Mm -hmm. to talk to, but there's also part two. So let's get to two. Okay. So the chapters in part two um, take us into the significance and the outcomes of these transformations that we've been talking about in part one. So the court Mm -hmm. is investing in the ink landscape as a cultural medium, What are some of the important outcomes of this? Now, the medium is, um, as a result, um, as you put it here, acquiring new social dimensions. In the final decades of the 11th century, these intimate scenes appeared, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And also, intimate landscape paintings become socially acceptable outlets of expression and they're used as a kind of mode of exchange, a medium of exchange, and private communication among scholars. Now, there is easily, like, probably an hour or two of stuff (laughs) that we can talk about here, so we're just (laughs) going to skim the surface, but let's at least peek in and see some of the cool stuff that's happening. Chapter four is looking at these intimate scenes painted by Guo Xi, and at the beginning of our conversation, you've already talked a little bit about um, this hand scroll, Old Trees Level Distance in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you've talked a little bit about um, how important and surprising and exciting this is. Now, Mm -hmm. um, you describe this as the only surviving work. So I just want to mark this because this is a really strong and very important claim. You describe this as the only surviving work in which one might find a trace of the individual and gain insight into his person, his relationship's, And his values. So bring us into this painting. How do we read this painting um, as a way uh, to give us access to the individual? What's important for you for us to understand about what's in this painting and, and the consequences of what's in this painting?
0: Yes, uh, that is a good question. Uh, Because art historians always worry about uh, making uh, such claims that there is any uh, uh, something of the artist himself that he's uh, placing inside his painting that we can actually tease out as uh, secondary viewers. Um, Well, in this case, uh, it is in fact um, the observation that my observation that this painting couldn't be uh, more unlike uh Guo Xi's other painting that we talked about earlier uh that is early spring uh and it is because it is so different that i it it's, uh it pushed me to to try and understand uh why so uh, as the great court painter Shin favorite court painter uh and the great representation of the Li Cheng, uh dynastic style uh song style of the landscape uh it's would appear very, very strange for him to paint these small works for private purposes. and But that was what I set out to show. Uh, and it was possible uh, to to do this because um, of the set of poetry that uh, Sushu wrote, uh, which actually, again, um, uh, received Guo Xi's paintings in ways which were very unexpected. That is to say, they saw Guo Xi's little, uh, these uh, small paintings by Guo Xi and wrote uh, very movingly about uh, their discomfort and their dissent, uh, their disagreement with uh, what was going on in their political life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this uh, this uh, reception of Guo Xi's uh, paintings, uh uh is uh, in fact almost ironic given that guoxi was uh, Shen shenzhong's favorite painter uh in fact the, the, the disagreement with shenzhong through guoxi's paintings is, 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 a, is a, a, there is some irony in that um now um i did some biographical work on uh guoxi there is a, uh we know actually Surprisingly, little about him, even though he, of any of the painters from the Northern of we know the most, because there survived texts that are attributed to him and, uh, as more certainly edited, by his son. So uh Xi is a, still remains an enigmatic figure, but uh, on the other hand, uh, I have been able to tie him uh to a very prominent fan family uh Sichuanese uh clan uh so he wasn't just anyone um he wasn't just a illiterate court painter he was uh uh he was actually he he had a very powerful relations number one and number two uh it would seem that he also uh was acquainted with several prominent um um, statesman, uh, namely Fubi, uh, who was the former Grand Counselor, and also Wen another former Grand Counselor. So he was incredibly well connected. Uh, he was also the same age as them. So, given that and some other uh, sort of issues where all of them were in semi exile in, in uh, the second capital, Luoyang, together, I felt that it was possible to. Um, propose a uh, a sort of a a setting in which uh, this kind of work might have been uh, created for. So, this number one on uh, on the one hand, uh, social uh, relationships. Uh, sort of, and uh, secondly, uh, a private setting in which um, a, such a painting might have uh, found resonance. Uh, so, uh, this chapter, therefore. Um, um uh, is as I said earlier, is one which I, I'm primarily known for. This is uh, this is the original uh finding. Um uh certainly uh the reading of uh Shi's and Huan Tingjian's and Su poetry uh and their uh increasingly loud uh protestation that they lodged as uh, they were uh looking at uh, well, uh very desolate the imagery. Um uh, and secondly, Guo biography itself, uh, which I think um, uh, uh, we can propose. I think that um, it's the, the the context against which to interpret the, the existence of these paintings.
1: That's right, and, um, and and there's so much more that we could talk about, right? In terms of this chapter, I mean, the poetry itself. Like, we won't have time to talk about the details, but there's a whole long, um, really wonderful accounting of these poetic exchanges in the chapter. So listeners who are particularly interested in that, there's a lot of attention to that in this chapter, and it's fascinating. And it's one of the really exciting ways that the book is bringing together poetry, literature, critical reading of those kinds of sources with critical mm-hmm. reading of images and paintings. And in fact, one of the things that you propose um, in this chapter, and we don't have to talk a whole lot about it, but it's just a, it's a way of modeling how this juxtaposition can help actually read the paintings, you propose mm-hmm. that it's possible at least to interpret the hand scroll as a picture of this statesman Wen Yanbo at leisure, right? So, so once mm-hmm. we understand the biography, and once we understand um, these relationships, it actually helps us see, at least Potentially, right? The painting in a new way. So Mm -hmm. there's a whole other chapter, chapter five, that really (laughs) kind of takes this these insights um, and extends them into a conversation about um, the ways that more and more painters, like from a bunch of social classes, aristocrats, court officials, um, professional painters, begin to work in um, this more intimate mode, as you call it, of landscape painting, and they create these intimate scenes, um, as you describe them here. So these are not works that are intended for public display, but instead they're works that are intended um, or that are associated with particular kinds of social occasions, right, making acquaintance with someone, saying farewell to someone. And they become a kind of social currency, a personal communication among friends and acquaintances. Now, there's a ton that we could talk about in here. You give us Um, uh, for example, a reading of some of the imagery in these paintings that can help us understand the larger um, conversations that they were part of. And some of this imagery is strikingly associated with a larger theme um, that permeates these two chapters, and that is the theme of exile. So you've Mm -hmm. already talked a little bit about this, but can you Maybe just very briefly, um, talk a little bit about the ways that these particular intimate painted scenes are um, bound up in, are reflecting, are imaging concerns with
0: exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, one of the so this chapter really is uh, a discovery of uh, paintings that were cohorts of the old feet level business, uh, by Guo Xi. so the kind of two. To again emphasize that this works, uh, Guo Xie, these works by Courbet, these intimate works by Courbet, were not one of, even though he may have been one of the first people to do it, uh, but that in fact there was a larger push towards these, uh, this other uh, category of uh, of of uh, of, uh, of painting which functioned in a very different way than the grand display paintings, um, and in that sense. Uh, um the uh the gift uh, culture was a very important part of it that uh they became currency uh a, a, a literal currency of uh of gift and exchange uh that one um often uh, the literati oftentimes exchanged poetry but suddenly it became possible to uh also exchange paintings amongst each other as part of that similar part of that process um so uh that was of course the context and the subjects were also uh, somewhat related to the poetic subjects uh, uh first of all uh, one of the main uh, um uh, uh uh purposes was uh during uh, this was something that Li Gonglin was the progenitor of he, he he started this idea that one could give a painting as opposed to a poem as a farewell gift so, of course, farewell is, becomes a very important uh, uh, subject matter for this kind of what I call intimate painting. Um, so, uh, farewell is, of course, uh, just the other side of the coin to exile. Uh, that is, this uh, on the sliding scale, uh, you say goodbye to somebody. Why do you say goodbye to somebody? So, uh, uh, one can uh, uh, play in very different ways. That is uh because they're leaving uh for to take up a new government office or because they're leaving because they're being exiled so uh, so this uh this kind of uh, uh imagery a uh, pictorial imagery can in fact read many different ways and there are paintings which uh which uh, survive that fall on both ends of the spectrum so um i wanted to tell the uh, to uh to uh, after the chapter on all three level distance to try and open up the conversation to discuss the the uh, uh, broader context for the existence of this uh, these uh, small uh, small privately produced painting.
1: Now, there's a whole um, a whole lot more going on in that chapter, right? And there's a whole conclusion mm-hmm. on top of this that does lots of stuff to wrap up the book and to mm-hmm. also point us to uh, the important issue of Guo Xi's legacy under Huizong. Ah, yes, <laughs> which is also <laughs> right an, an important issue. Do you want to speak to that last issue briefly, or would you rather? Oh, sure. That kind of mystery for okay.
0: Oh no I uh I'm very proud of this. Okay. <laughs> uh this uh, conclusion um, because it, it does of course uh, you know come together after many many uh years of study and this the story of uh, Korshi has always ended on a on a melancholic tone because this is the story from rags to uh, from riches to rags that literally, is right? literally yeah literally yes. <laughs> literally to rags, that Guo large public works, uh, that Deng Chung tells us that uh, his paintings became discarded and started the mounters in the, in the, in the, in the bureaus started using it to wipe up a table. Mm-hmm. So the question is how to interpret this. Given the, all that we know uh, that uh, of Guo Xi's uh, importance uh, under, uh, Shin, under Hui Tong's father, Sun why would Zhuang allow this to happen? And sometimes the story is told that, in fact, it is because Huizong's attention had turned to uh, to a very different uh, viewpoint that his taste was not uh, of the Liang Guoxi style. But in my opinion, this is um, it's uh, very difficult to to support that point of view. That given all that we know. That perhaps this uh this idea that uh, the changing taste of the sovereign can uh can uh, uh, uh result in this kind of uh, uh of turning important paintings to rags that it actually reflects too much of the twentieth century ideas of preservation and conservation that uh we must conserve only uh but I feel that it is possible to um take a different spin on it. Um, that, in fact, uh, that Huizong indeed was, had a, uh, had uh, a more art historical bent, but he was perhaps looking to only preserve, uh, his, uh, Guoxi's, uh, and his father's favorite painter's legacy in certain areas, but, uh, but not that everything should be preserved. So, um, um, I, 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 I think that, um, you know, that, uh, the story, uh, uh, a <laughs> Better, uh, that we should not have this as an incongruous picture. That uh, he, uh, he uh, that uh, he decided to his new focus on ancient paintings resulted in this deterioration of Guo uh, of Xi's painting was not actually a loss of favor, but it was actually because Guizong was trying to evaluate uh, and to incorporate Guo contribution into the larger picture of uh, of uh, dynastic of uh, Song dynastic legacy. Okay.
1: So there is a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's a a lot of analysis and lots of wonderful works in all of these chapters. But now that we're at the conclusion of the Mm -hmm. conversation, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Perhaps to
0: emphasize that... um, it may seem that this book is uh, is uh, a monograph on Guo Xi, but actually, to say that it is it it's, uh, it is a very strong focus on this painter Guo Xi, But on the other hand, it is it attempts to to utilize these two aspects of Guo Xi to tell a very a big picture of some painting history to uh, attempt to um, re uh, to try and tell a different the story with a different balance. That is to say, it is a, a story of uh, the literati versus court painters, but it is a story of court painting in general, of people at court. That is that includes court painters and literati painters. So that is a uh, that's uh, perhaps the sort of the the one of the uh one of the larger purposes in this uh in this book.
1: And now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you working on now and what are you inspired by? Yeah. Uh
0: well as you know, uh, I've decided to uh try my hand At being a curator, Uh, so I'm at present trying to broaden my horizons and to attempt to uh, learn about uh, things that have nothing to do with the Song Court, (laughs) Uh, um, and to uh, perhaps even to or organize to try and uh, to to gain some expertise in contemporary uh, paint uh, uh, art. Um, But I actually still have a a book project that uh, has been in the works for a, a while now. Uh, so I've been working on um, uh, what I think I broadly construe as spatial issues uh, that can be defined by the the position, the institutional position of the, of of uh, artists at the at the academy system, uh, so primarily the painting academy, but uh, also uh, more broadly speaking, these uh, uh, expert uh, 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 artists, uh, including calligraphers, painters, doctors, astronomers, and so forth, and how they were associated uh, with the Song court. Uh, uh, more specifically, I'm focusing on a on a, a write up. On um, Another court painter, actually uh, Guoxi's predecessor, Huang Chen, the very first person who was associated with the Song Painting Academy, and to try and find connections between uh, the ways that uh, Huang Chen received his uh, uh, position and titles uh, when he was a, a, an artist in Sichuan. And after he arrived... Uh, he uh, Arrived as a as a political holdover at the Song court after his uh, the Sichuanese, uh, uh kingdom fell to the uh, first Song emperor. So uh, there's still plenty to do, um, and, and and some of this work is uh, is uh, is slowly coming uh, into press.
1: Well, best of luck uh, with that work, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the efficacious landscape. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.